Chats from the Blog Cabin. With you every week. Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. You know, this is the show where I invite people to chat in the blog cabin virtually. And today I am chatting with author Gordon Hutchinson of his book, Reality Bites. And your book is so funny. But you've actually come to writing in an unusual way. You actually lived in Japan. You, You wrote a book about geishas, gangsters, and monks, and me. You have such a varied career. How did you come into writing? Okay, well, I need to back up for a second and not jump right into that. Um, I was in Japan, and I had some, like I said, some very weird experiences early on. But then I kind of got a day job. I was an advertising copywriter. So I've, I've been a writer for a long time, but I never dreamed about being an author. Um But when I got back to America, I had three books in my head. None of them were anywhere close to related, so it would not be the kind of subject matter you build a platform on like most successful writers do. But I just want, I was, you know, I was lucky. I didn't, I wasn't depending on book sales to, you know, provide the rent. So Reality Bites is the third, I mean, is the second one. Um, and Gangsters, Geishas, Monks, and Me is the first one, and these two could not be farther apart. Um, But I didn't plan to write a book about this. I didn't plan to put it in book form because it was basically just a diary for me, Uh, and I was a copywriter, and I'm so it gave me a kind of closure to put things down in coherent form, in words. And somehow that gave me more control over the situation because most of these come from some level of frustration. <laughs> <laughs> um, me reacting to the craziness of the world. So I... Um, it's a, it's that, you know, how this book became a book is also a long story, but I'll, you know, I'll let you ask questions and we'll get around to that. Well, let's talk about living in Japan first, because I mean, you have a BA in psychology and religion yeah. from Duke. So go blue devils. Cause I'm a big blue devil fan. So go Duke. Um, and then you hitchhike across America and then you landed in Japan. How, why? 
Why? Because um, I did graduate from Duke. I got pretty good grades, but I wasn't ready to, you know, go to post-grad. And back then, unlike your daughter and my son, we had more wiggle room. Um, and so I, I traveled, but then I, then I hit a reality wall when I tried to actually get a, a job and I, they laughed me out of every interview that I went to. And to make a long story short, I said to hell with this. And I decided to take it on the road, but on a grander scale, in other words, go around the world. And I was lucky enough to get a job teaching English in Sapporo, Japan, which is in the top, the capital of the top island, Hokkaido. And uh, I would, I had been planning to, to start from Europe, but I said, well, east, west, either one works for me. So I went that way. And then I thought it would be rude not to learn the language because that was in 1975 and almost all the, the foreigners in Japan at that time were English teachers and they couldn't speak Japanese and that was how they got by. And I thought that was rude. If you're going to go to a country, then at least you should make the effort. And I was, as I was making the effort, I came to fall in love with it. And I was in my late 20s at that time, and that was the first time I had ever come upon something that enveloped me so much that I could see doing something with it. And then it turned, later it turned into a very, very fun, creative and lucrative profession. But at that time it was just, well, I'm not staying here a year like I planned. I'm gonna, you know, stay another year and then see what happens. And, you know, one year turned into 30. Uh, and that's, you know, after about two years, that's when I went into the Zen temple and lived in the little town of Obama. Actually, there is a town called Obama. <laughs> um, and uh, that's where all the weirdness started. But it was, I was very lucky, put it this way. Most people couldn't have taken that much time off and uh, come out of it with a pair of new shoes. So very, very lucky. Now let's talk about Obama because hmm. you actually, your book, Gangsters, Geisha, Monks, and Me, because I read up a little bit, you, part of the proceeds went to the, the people that suffered from the tsunami, correct? Yes. Yes, um, not a whole lot because I didn't pr promote the book very much. However, um, in 1995, as you might not remember, there was a huge earthquake in Kobe. And Kobe is near Kyoto, and Kyoto is fairly near Obama. Okay, they're all in the Kansai area of Japan. And... Um, a friend of mine, I was in Tokyo at the time, and a friend of mine came to me and she said, well, why don't we do a charity t-shirt? And I said, okay. 
So we did a charity T-shirt for the for the survivors of the um, of the earthquake. And long story short, we were able to give fifteen thousand dollars to three organizations. One, the uh, Board of Education of Kobe to use in buying new textbooks. The next one was for I didn't I didn't choose that the the father of this. Um, of the the father of this girl's boyfriend who was Japanese and worked for the government chose that. Uh, the ones that I chose were um, handicapped people who worked in a factory where they made things for sale and the factory got totally leveled in the earthquake. That's one set. And the next, the last it wasn't an organization. It was just a, a bunch of people who had set up tents in a public park because their houses had been destroyed. And we tried to find, originally when we were still back in Tokyo, we tried to find an organization who would give that money to the people in need. But when I asked these the, uh, the, the charity where is this money going to go? They said, well, we can't give you that information. So I said, well, to hell with you. And I hand carried that money to Kobe and I gave it to the people who needed it. And um, it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. So when I, you know, when it came to, um, when it came to finally putting out gangsters, uh, that was still fresh in my memory, even though it was from the mid '90s, because I put out Gangsters in twenty in spring of twenty twelve, sometime, and the uh, and the uh, um, Fukushima tsunami and, and other all the other stuff that went with it uh, happened in twenty eleven. So that was fresh in my mind, and I, like I said, I did not promote the book just because it was, I'm not into glad handing very much. So I wasn't able to give as much as I wanted to, but the spirit was there. Yeah. I love that because a lot of authors don't even think about, um, even giving back to other places. They just want all the money for themselves. And I love the fact that you were, you weren't selfish and you said, okay, part of the proceeds is going to go back there. Well, I was in a very, lucky position because I wasn't depending on this money for rent. I, I had, uh, I had come back to America partially to take care of my um, mother who was very sick and live with my parents. And um, so I was, I was blessed by, you know, having the luxury of being able to do that. Um, and it's the same luxury that allowed me to put out reality bikes, which is absolutely 180 degrees <laughs> different from gangsters. And the next book I'm writing is equally, it's about Japan, but it's nothing like that. And uh, so it's just me in my old age playing, you know, <laughs> playing around. <laughs> in your old age. I love that. Now let's talk about reality bites because it, okay. it was hysterical.
<laughs> so tell me what was the re meaning behind that? Why was the reasoning behind you writing this? There is no reasoning. It just, okay. Uh, you know, and it's interesting and I will explain why in a second, but reality bites was basically a diary. Okay. Of me reacting to life. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of that was frustration. Um, and the first, the first one, the first one liner I ever wrote, which is the first one in the book was me thinking about old age. Maybe you could read that. Cause I can't, I don't know it verbatim by heart. It says life is a series of progressively less successful ventures in crisis management. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's it. And, and I don't know where that came from, but I said, Hmm, that, that, that hits, that hits home. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, that was in, that was also in 1995. And from there they just kept coming and I didn't, push them out, I let them come, and which is why it took, you know, uh, 20 years to get enough good ones, at least, uh, to, to do something like that. And, um, and then I'll tell you, you know, how I discovered what it really meant to me. And that was when I had all these I had all these one-liners and most of them are not really aphorisms and we'll, you know, I'll talk about that in a second, but, um, once, so I had hundreds and hundreds of, of one-liners, some of which were aphorisms, but not all. And I just started thinking about putting out a book, but I didn't know anything about aphorisms or anything related to that. So I started reading other books, but very, very few people. I only know one other guy who writes original one-liners. I don't write them, but because the, the, this is a one-off for me, he makes a profession mm -hmm. out of it. Okay, uh, but I, I didn't know how to begin writing an introduction. So I started reading other people's compilations of how they in how they handled their introductions, and I. You know, being a copywriter, you know, I'm a wordsmith. I like wordplay, et cetera, et cetera. And I love one-liners, especially the sarcastic ones. So I would read, you know, all these books. And as I was reading 50 or 60 books, and after a while it became just as much fun to read the one-liners as it was educational to read the introduction. But I was, I read, I read uh, just over and over and over, I found people, celebrities from the past who were saying exactly the same thing that I was. Mm -hmm. And in one case, I found, and I, I can remember this, it's those who live for the hunt rarely savor the kill. Okay. Mm -hmm. And basically that's, that's, you know, um, when you've got something, you don't treat it as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're chasing it, like if you're chasing a woman, um, 
but when you get her, you don't appreciate her. Mm-hmm. Well, I found 16 of those from 2,000 years ago that were saying the exact same thing. And that was fascinating to me. But at the same time, it gave me a strange sense of validation. That was my first feedback of the book. And I, I you know, I was humbled to find myself in such distinguished company. But so I decided to to include all those other, you know, those quotes from other people who were saying the exact same thing, because I thought that might add an interesting feature that, you know, people might like instead of just boom, 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 boom. And uh, I, I, so far, I, it seems that I was right. But that was the tipping point. Uh, plus, by that time, I had an idea of what to, you know, how to write an introduction, which I did. And uh, that was a tipping point that, that kind of pushed me into, well, let's publish it. Um, so. I mean, because we have a lot of one-liners here. It's well, really, that's really. what they are. They're one-liners, you know. Uh, and and you asked me what an aphorism is, and actually I have I there are notes here somewhere. Um, it, it's in the introduction, but I you know I there uh, the the definition I looked up is a pithy observation that contains a general truth, which is which is true, and then um, a guy named James Geary who is one of the authorities in the field, um, gives the five conditions for an aphorism. It must be brief. It must be definitive. And I explained that I'm not sure what that is. It must be personal. It must have a twist and it must be philosophical. And I don't necessarily agree with him on that last one, but I guess that's basically what he's saying is the same as the definition in containing a general truth. But as you will understand, many of, in fact, most of the the one-liners in my book are not aphorisms. Some are. Mm But not most. I mean, I'm asking, you know, I ask a lot of questions. And and once I started to feel validated, I also realized that I was reaching out to see if other people felt the same way that I do, which is that this world is batshit crazy. <laughs> and, you know, I was... In fact, I think I put it in the in the uh, introduction, but a lot of these things are funny. Intentionally so, some not intentionally so, but when I looked at it from that different perspective, I realized that a lot of those ones that make you laugh are laughing to keep from crying, mm-hmm. uh, which is so much the case in today's world, you know. So you, for, I love the way you formatted it, um, where it's quick and easy. You can pick it up and read it whenever you have a time. And you, it's like you've got like, t- they're like numbered. So how long yes. did it take you to come up? Like you said, you started in 1995. Because I wasn't, 
I wasn't try. I didn't have a deadline. There were no publishers beating down my door. And for you know, take a rock group. The music company is saying, you know, you got to put this out. You got you got to give us twelve songs in a year. And so they come out with less than you know satisfactory or things they're not satisfied with. I, again, had the luxury of taking all the time I wanted to. And uh, truth be told, I put this, I put Reality Bites out in two, 2015, the first version. And then I would start reading it. Again, full disclosure, while I was waiting for the bathtub to fill up, you know, five minutes a day. And I'm thinking, oh, who the hell wrote this? in some cases and and so i started rewriting a lot of them re completely rewriting some of them and then um i got the i got it reviewed on kirkus and i was surprised at how good a review they gave me for something i wasn't 100 percent satisfied with it, in retrospect and then a woman from the advertising department said, well, look, uh, we're doing a special, we're giving special discounts on books on our recommended list. And I said, recommended list, what? And so apparently there's no record of this, but Kirkus does have a recommended list and Reality Bites is on it. The top books are blue star reviews. And those are among the top two and three percent of the of the ones reviewed. Well, the recommended list, this is, again, no record of it, but there is apparently such a list. And I thought that, well, given that you know circumstance, then maybe I will. And it took three years to to get to get around to do it, but uh, to doing it, but. I, uh, it gave me an emphasis to actually go through and polish some of the stuff I had. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad I did because this, you know, some are better than others, but I don't cringe when I, you know, read through the book. <laughs> so it's always better the second time around, correct? Well, not for marriage in some, <laughs> as, uh, as you might, as you might have told, I'm, I'm, um, this is not the, this is not the kind of book you read for romantic inspiration. I, you know, have a bad track record with marriage, not from lack of trying, but, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, so there, you know, there, there are some, there's a lot of, there are, there are a lot of um, one-liners on relationships, good and bad, but um, yeah, marriage, not so much. So people who are looking, people who are looking for religious inspiration might want to keep looking too, because it's, it's a little irreverent in, uh, in those areas. But funny. Hopefully. You know, um, because one of them was, where would where would Christianity be without capital punishment? 
You think about that for a while. Mm -hmm. Some people laugh and some people want to burn a cross in my yard. Um, and that's the whole thing is they're very, they, and this guy Geary is right. They are very, very personal. So if, you know, a lot of people, if they've had that experience, then some of them can get around the irreverence. Um, some of them can't. And I didn't, you know, I know it's not for everybody there. And, you know, when I think about giving a book to somebody, I have to think long and hard about who I'm giving it to. Are they going to be, are they going to enjoy it? Or are they going to be offended? And, um, so I don't just go handing these things out willy nilly. Wow. So um, I know I asked you to read some from your book. Are you willing to do that? Well, yeah, this is not the kind of um, situation where you, you know, you do a reading, but um, yeah, I pulled out, I pulled out uh, some. And as I said, it's, it's sorry, I'm out of the picture. Uh, it's a diary, basically. So it shows the changes in me. And I came back to America when I was 55. And um, so I was, you know, I was younger, a lot younger in Japan. And when I came back here, I had a kid and, you know, older. And so it's interesting to look at the changes, okay? And I'll I'll illustrate um, one of the one of the snarkier entries is uh, right in the beginning. If you can't say something nice, say it first. <laughs> some people like that. Some people, you know, think I have a twisted personality. Uh, and then there is. Life is life is too short to play fair. I wrote that basically. I, I channeled the American in me, and the same thing with if you can't beat them, sue them. Which is mm -hmm. you know that's that's pure Americana, okay. And I actually I wrote that in Japan, but I was I had probably seen some news, and then there are the ones that I said you know when I after our, after my son was born. Uh, I was looking at kids in a completely new way and raising kids in a completely new way. And so the next two were about that. Children are God's way of letting parents know if they're having a nice day. <laughs> and that's, you know, I mean, every parent, I, I would assume most parents can empathize with that. Uh, and there's another one that's... Uh, that more distracted parents might like. If God can't make his children obey, what's a parent to do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay. And then I happen to be an only son and I feel fortunate about having been an only son. And I'm sure that came through in these two. Treasure friendship revere love honor family but remember in the end you're all you've got mm -hmm. and at some of my you know i like people 
but I'm, you know, you come into the world by yourself, you leave it by yourself, mm -hmm. and, you know, you better make the best of it because, you know, you are in the end alone. And there's, you know, a lot of people haven't come to terms with that. And, and me being an only child, I kind of had a head start and doing the, uh, the Zen in Japan gave me a new, you know, a, a new awareness of that, of you're basically training to deal with death. Okay. Um, and we're going down a dark rabbit hole here, but <laughs> the other one is uh, something that, um, I have noticed a lot, especially in the in the pandemic. In fact, another interviewer picked this one out, and he said it was perfect for the pandemic. And that is, solitude is the opportunity to get better acquainted with yourself. Loneliness is the failure to take advantage of that opportunity. And so... You know, there, there, so there are some serious ones and um, some not so serious ones. And you, you want me to go on? Hell, I could go on. You know? <laughs> how, and, how, and how do you come up with the idea to make it into a book, though? Well, there was a process for that. Um, in the beginning, okay, here's, here's another one. Dirty minds think more. That's a t-shirt slogan. And in fact, I made a series, uh, a t-shirt series for foreigners in Japan that regular died in the, you know, tried and true Americans wouldn't really get. But Jap Jap uh, foreigners who live in Japan would definitely get. And so I was, and the t-shirt the that we made for the, um, the, the earthquake survivors. So, you know, that's how a t-shirt thing came to me. And as I was, as I was writing more of these, or I was accumulating more of these, some of them didn't fit t-shirts, but they would have, they would have lent themselves to illustrated captions. Mm. And uh, once I got over here and I put out gangsters, I had a, I had a, uh, an agent at the time and she said that that would not sell. Mm. And so I didn't stop writing them, but what I, what I did was start writing or not intentionally, but I, it gave me the freedom to write stuff that did not need illustration. Uh, that that was a that was a standalone, like like some of the things I just read. Um, but with you know after after you got to three hundred, four hundred, uh, I cleaned them out. You know took the, the questionable ones and kept the good ones and rinse and repeat. And, and when I got 400 good ones, I, um, that's when I started doing what I told you about reading other books to, to see how they handled it. And so it was, it was a process and it wasn't, 
I want to write something. Um, that's, you know, I, I just, without trying to be falsely humble, I just had, when I, you know, I told you, I came back with three books in my head, one of, only one of which I knew of, knew about at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm almost through with all of them. So, you know, I guess this is our last interview because you're certainly not going to want to interview me <laughs> to what I'm writing now. That's that my next question. No, no way. No way. This is going to be the, the challenge with this book is that I'm going to have to find a university press. It's, you know, psycho, psychoanalysis, ancient and medieval Japanese history. And, you know, I see your eyes glaze over right now with that because it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, my son-in-law is Japanese, so you never I saw know. that. Yeah, right. I didn't know, you know, what what form of Asian because there's a mix. But uh, uh, how does your how does your daughter, um, you know, how are they doing? In other words, because I didn't do well, and part of it was uh, cultural. Well, he was born in Japan, and his both his parents were Japan, but his mom. Um, got married, remarried, and ended up with um, a soldier. So they came and lived here. But his okay. first language was Japanese until he was, I think, seven or eight or nine years old. He didn't know right. any other language but yeah. Japanese. So, yeah. Okay. So he's, yeah, he's, he's um, been enculturated. Uh, mm -hmm. and, but from my experience, and I went out with a few girls uh, who were, first or second generation Japanese and they didn't know what culture they belonged in because mm -hmm. their parents were hundred percent full blown and they were second generation. So they had this conflict of you do it our way, you do it the Japanese way. And all their friends were saying, why are you doing that? You know, do it the American way. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a whole different, cultural demographic and they really are in many of them are in no man's land. Some, you know, some, some adjust better than others, but, uh, it's, you know, if at all possible, I recommend anybody getting, you know, a different perspective on your own culture, because it not only gives you a sense, a greater sense of what's wrong with it, but what's mm -hmm. right with it. Yep. And um, I happened to be in advertising, so I had to explain a lot of things to Japanese clients. So I had to be able to put these things in, in words, in coherent sentences. And that, um, that really, and you know, I discovered a lot of things while I was doing that. And a lot of that, that stuff that I discovered uh, that went into to gangsters, you know, in little snippets, because I wrote gangsters with a lesson in mind. There was one lesson, main lesson for each chapter. And, and so that, you know, that, that me being forced to think about, well, why is an American an American and why is a Japanese a Japanese was very beneficial 
Uh, and then, but like I said, they, that's also, uh, there. there's a lot of that as foundation for, um, you know, reality bites. A lot of that experience has gone into, um, you know, you can't tell, mm-hmm. but it's there. Yeah, I totally yeah, understand what you're saying. saying. Personally, it's all into someone else's culture because my husband is in Mexico. Oh, cool! United Nations going on in our yeah. in our family. Hey, look, that that can be a blessing or it can be a disaster. And when it you know when it works, there's there's nothing better. And everybody everybody gains. It's like um, my grand my father lived with me and my son. And that was a, I didn't get along very well with him, but those two, my son and my father, got along beautifully. And it was a huge help to Evan having that extra authority figure who didn't exercise his authority in the household. You know, it was something that that uh, my father taught him phonics and, you know, he didn't spoil him, but he was... He was another source of, he was a you know second parent, and and so yeah, if you can make it work, then hats off to you, and I think it will be to your great advantage in the long run, and probably your grandchildren's advantage. The you know the the the, the tolerance that uh, and the un, the expanded understanding that they will get from being in that environment. So those to you and yours thank you so much now you said that that's you have that book coming out or you're writing it in the process of it right now i just finished the rough draft so and i have to write the book proposal and get a and get a university press so don't don't hold your breath please (laughs) (laughs) so what else do you do besides write the book are you still doing the copyright or is this something you're doing in retirement I don't have time to do that anymore. And I, um, until I was 55, I thought I was going to be easing into a graceful retirement. And my son blew the hell, that the hell out of the water. (laughs) Um, But basically what I'm trying, what I'm doing right now at 71 and hope I have the time to finish it is tying up loose ends, you know, because in Japan, I was busy, I was working, I was playing around, and I started a lot of things, but I never finished any. And Gangsters was the first thing I really finished, because that took 30 years, you know, off and on. I'd come to a block, I'd get writer's block, put it off for another five years, and, you know, do the same thing. So right now, I'm... You know, and I mean, being a parent is a full-time job. I don't have to tell you that. So right now, my son, Evan, is, uh, he's, he, uh, he's, he wants to study architecture and he's going to App State. And he's been gradually increasing his enthusiasm for this. Um... So I've been trying, you know, I mean, I've been trying to guide him into what it takes to be uh, a um, a self, self-sufficient self individual, because 
one of the downsides of being an older parent, I'm 71, he's 17, uh, is that I'm not going to be around for, you know, mm-hmm. a long time. Uh, my father died a year and a half ago. He was 97. I was um, 69. And, you know, having him around was, was a different dynamic from... You know my my relationship with my son but at the same time being an older there are advantages because when you're 25 you don't know your ass from your elbow <laughs> and at 55 i could give him the guidance mm-hmm. that he really needed and and luckily it's okay it's hard to it's hard to bring a kid back when they once <clears throat> excuse me once they start to go wrong. Mm-hmm. It's easy to keep them on the straight and narrow if you do it from the beginning. And like I said, my father was here. He helped teach him, you know, phonics and other things. And uh, I I grew up in the in the sixties. I was a child of the 60s. I did all the things that 60s kids did, lied to my parents. Um, But I think that today's kids have it much harder. There's more pressure on them, blah, 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 blah. The relationships are even more screwed up than they were in our, you know, in my day. Um, But I, you know, so I, I had a good relationship with my parents but I really didn't give anything back until I finally came home. Uh, I had no idea that I would get such a return on my investment with my son who, I mean, he, my father was very serious guy. He was a child of the depression and, um, a lot of it skipped a generation. (laughs) And, uh, so I consider myself very lucky. And I'm going to, you know, Evan's going to stay around with me for one year, do virtual classes at, um, at App State. And then I'm going to, you know, figure out what to do with my own life and just let him go and, and do, you know, do it like that. I'll probably be writing a lot of one-liners about uh, <laughs> empty nesting and uh, things like that in the future. But it's, um, I, I feel very lucky. It sounds like you, you know, you're, you're pretty lucky yourself. So. Yeah, it's so funny that you said um, about architecture because my middle daughter just actually graduated with an interior architecture degree from mm. University of Greensboro. So I, yeah. I was like, there's so many similarities here. But I really applaud you for taking on parenthood at such a later stage. It wasn't planned. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> you, know, you could have actually... You, you, you didn't have to stand up. You could have actually just walked away, but you well, didn't. No, I was, I, we were married. His Evan's mother and I were married. Um, but we, you know, it, we weren't planning on having a kid because I was 55 and in a different, you know, it's, it's not great to be old in a different culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I that I brought the family back here, because I, I I did want to help take care of my mother, but there was that stability and that 
you know, boy, not being in Japan still eats at me after 15 years. But as far as evidence concerned, I did the right thing. It was, you know, having him grow up in Japan and having him grow up in Cary, which is, you know, has a lot of greenery, but there are cultural events, blah, blah, blah. Good schools, good athletic facilities, et cetera, et cetera. I certainly wouldn't, you know, I mean, I've given up on dating, but uh, the first thing I thought when I got here, after having been in Tokyo for all those years was, Boy, I'm glad I'm not a bachelor here. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'm way, way past all that now. But uh, it, it's been it's been good for him, and I'm glad we're here. And you know, America's a great place in many ways. So, yep, that's so true. And I, our time is almost up. So, is there one last little nugget that you want to leave people with? I'm not sure if it's a nugget, but um, if you go to Amazon.com and type in reality can be okay, but mostly blah, 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 you will come to the first version. Apparently, the sales for the second version have not superseded the sales for the first version. And when that happens, you will go directly to the blue cover. But this is the tan cover you will go to, and you have to click on that before you find out that this the tan cover is not available, no longer in print, and there's another one. So it's kind of an Easter egg hunt. Uh, in fact, I checked last night, but on Barnes and Noble and in other bookstores, it's there with no, you know, hoops to jump through to get to it. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how much of a promotional conversation this has been for Reality Bites, but I enjoy talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on Chats from the Blog Cabin and sharing your life. I mean, honestly, I think you dropped a lot of a lot of nuggets as we were chatting. So, well, it's been a pleasure, and I, you know, it's uh, it's 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 nice to know that I have a similarly international little cluster not not far away and i'll uh, i'll try to try to tune in from time to time <laughs> so guys I, once again gordon thank you for coming on and we will see you on the next chat from the block cabin guys have a blessed day thank you so much chats from the blog cabin hit subscribe, hit subscribe. and don't, don't miss, miss the, the next, next episode, episode.